This is The Global Custodian. There's always a FinReg Angle podcast keeping you up to date with the latest developments in financial regulation. Hello and welcome to There's Always a FinReg Angle. I'm John Watkins, editor of Global Custodian, and I'm joined as always by a pair of FinReg experts, Sean Tuffy and Virginia O'Shea. How are you both? Very good. Doing good. Good to hear. We are also joined by our guest today, which is a FinReg Angle first, but we're very excited. So, from BMY Mellon, the EMEA Head of Public Policy and Government Affairs, Ben Pot. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, John. Great to be here and uh, look forward to joining this podcast. Do you want to tell us a bit about your background, your role at BMY Mellon, and perhaps you can talk to us about your favourite regulation to work on or, or talk about over the past few years? So my name is Ben Pot. I had our EMEA Public Policy and Government Affairs team here at BNY Mellon um, started my career at the regulator when it was called the FSA before moving to the EBA um, and then joining ICAP. And four and a half years ago, I um, came over to BNY Mellon. So that's my background in a nutshell. Um, you asked me about a favorite piece of regulation, uh, which is always a, a tricky one. I would probably say MIFID 2 and purely because it's such an all-encompassing piece of legislation, you know, it covers everything from market structure to investor protection. So I think probably have to go for that one. Wow, good answer. Um, Sean, what's yours? Oh, I'm a, I'm a usage man through and through. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Virginia? I can't pick just one, come on. Oh, wow. <laughs> as, if, as if you're hurting the feelings of the others by not picking them. <laughs> exactly. Um, I like like Benny you said it's a tricky question which suggests that people ask you a lot what your favourite regulation is as well every now and then I've been asked a question but you know I think if you work in this field you can't avoid it to be fair MIFID 2 is the gift that keeps on giving yeah Uh, are you a fan have you listened to the show before of course I've been an avid listener of the podcast especially the last few weeks so I look forward to joining you and um, yeah sharing some perspectives Fantastic. Well, there's a whole backlog going you know, back through four seasons of COVID as well, although um, it was probably a little bit less less slick back then. Have you, have you been on a podcast before? No, this is uh, my first foray into podcast territory. So um, I definitely look forward to uh, joining and seeing how it goes. Yeah, so what we, we tend to do is hit some news. And it's been about a month since our last podcast, so plenty of news. And uh, Virginia, you must notice this, that despite the summer slowdown in every other uh, aspects of, of financial services and you know trying to reach people that the regs FinReg news still comes out it does well I mean there's enforcement actions in the US going on there's been a little less uh, there's, there's just been recycled news from ESMA thus far over yeah. the last two weeks I noticed they must be on the beach at the moment because uh, I haven't seen any new proposals or anything but uh, there's yeah. a difference between the the Europe and, uh, and the US <laughs> right there exactly. Europe takes all of August off and uh, in the US they get uh, you know what 10 days of, of vacation so um, yeah, but look, a uh, lot to get through. I think first up, if I go chronologically, I think just after we finished our last uh, podcast recording, there were uh, there was an agreement reached on amendments for AFMD two. Um, and Sean, I thought I'd come to you for this, being a resident AFMD and USITS and all things funds expert. Um, what's what's this one about, and what are the changes we're seeing here? Yeah, so this is. When they released AFMD originally, it had baked into it a, a review process. So the, for the last couple of years, the Europe's been reviewing AFMD to see if there needed to be any major changes. And I think for the industry, at least, thankfully, there there has been it's less impactful than I had thought. So the big concern had been 
real sort of tightening around delegation uh, provisions to third countries, sort of a Brexit reaction, but that hasn't happened and it's, it's far less uh, less dramatic than people had thought. So AFMD too, the proposals now sort of look to sort of formalize a European-wide approach to uh, loan origination funds. Uh, there is some extra work around delegation, but mainly around disclosures, um, some rules around uh, improving the liquidity um, provisions. But overall, it's a pretty lesser uh, development that people had sort of feared. So I think it's in the trilogue now, but I don't think there's any sort of big banana peels, if you will, for the industry to, to worry about. Yeah, good. And and I think, I guess, under the same kind of umbrella theme, um, there was an update on LTIFs. Am I saying that right? LTIFs? Um, again, just around the time of, of recording. So I, I understand you're not a fan. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, so the LTIF, this is their second or third, depending on you, how you count it, attempt to sort of improve the framework. So coming out of the financial crisis, EU created a the LTIF, which is European Long-Term Investment Fund, which is really designed to encourage and channel uh, sort of European investors into long-term infrastructure projects within the EU. So sort of part of the, the grand capital markets union that we hear so much about from time to time. Um, it was less than successful. Um, not, a, not a lot of people used the, the framework. So they went back and uh, updated it again. Um, this time, the big changes are they sort of loosened up the eligibility requirements for investors. They broaden the spoke scope of uh, eligible investments. And then so really interestingly to me, at least because I'm a dork, is that they move the, the remove the requirement for the underlying investments to be within the EU. So it, it's sort of interesting to me is something that's third off as a project to encourage long term infrastructure investing in within Europe. Um, they've removed that key component. So now you can see, we'll probably see LTIF set up to fund longer projects outside the EU, which on a global basis is good, but sort of undermines the, the intent a little bit. Yeah, I thought, I mean, it's really interesting because usually I think come late July, it gets very quiet. And this time around with the AFMD review um, coming through at the last minute and notably also the money market fund report by the EU commission, there was quite a lot of late activity um, in July. So it wasn't quite the kind of July, August write-off that we sometimes get used to. And I think on the money market fund side, especially when you compare it to what happened in the US, where there was a kind of much more uh, systematic review, I think the European Commission kind of concluded the money market fund regulation was, was fit for purpose. There might be tweaks required, but overall, clearly a much less ambitious approach to money market fund reform than some might have expected. So we're not seeing this time of the European elections any new initiative, any review of money market fund regulation. I think that's quite uh, notable. The one thing I would say on, on the out of side, agree with what Sean has said, said, I think there is some excitement around, you know, the structure of the LTIF review, the fact that it can be used as a fund of funds, it's clearly a departure from the previous structure. So, you know, I have some, there's some hope in the industry that actually LTIF 2.0 might take off and be more successful than the uh, first iteration. Yeah, I mean, I think it, as Ben said, I mean, there wasn't as much need for a root and branch reform in the, the EU, because if you look at the money market reform that happened in the U.S. and Europe after the financial crisis, Europe went a lot farther 
around sort of requiring floating nabs and other things. So it, it didn't have the same structural issues that you see in the US. So in a lot of ways, it makes sense um, that, that Europe has decided they don't need to sort of continue pushing because again, there was no move to bail out European money market funds. I mean, that was a sort of a very specific US issue. So I think it's actually probably good that we're not seeing sort of overhauls for the sake of overhauls. Yeah. So let me keep uh, racing through these news updates then. We've got a few. Um, Virginia, SRD2 proposals. Uh, that's surely something you've been working <laughs> on or looking at. It is, of course, of course. Um, it sort of got issued out. Um, we've been waiting for it for a little while. Well, anyone that's in the governance space has been waiting for it for a little while. <laughs> um, so obviously, SRD2 came out 2020. It was implemented in 2020. Um, the usual cycle of a two-year review process and then um, an extra year added, uh, largely because uh, there was quite a lot of feedback, surprisingly. So I think they got, you know, so, sometimes you get sort of uh, on consultations, you get like four or five responses. This time we got to, I think, around about 73 or something like that, 73, 75. Um, so obviously uh, hits a lot of um, areas that people are quite passionate about and the ESG and the G bit of the ESG agenda. Um, and some of the most interesting bits of it, I guess, are finally getting um, a comprehensive description of what um, uh, you know shareholding is across the EU. That's been a big problem for many years. So um, I guess we, it's one thing that was in the Giovanni report back in early 2000s, um, so identified as a barrier to cross-border um, effective uh, post-trade um What's it? Support. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, certainly that's something that everyone's been wanting, uh, pushing for. Um, it's also an indicator that the next bit could be SRR in, S, instead of SRD, so uh, a regulation uh, replacing a directive. So there's less room for wiggle room from the um, individual national competent authorities. And there's also a lot of stuff around, uh, interestingly, very similar to what's been going on with the ESG month back, uh, we, we discussed that last time, in the US, um, there's a big pushback on the proxy advisors. Um, so some of the similar things that the uh, Republican contingent in the US have been proposing, the EU is actually proposing over here. I'm not in exactly the same vein, but they're sort of thematically similar in terms of making um, a much more rigorous authorization process for the proxy advisors, more oversight, more reporting, um, and just uh, you know more um, more of a push to try and encourage, um, I, I guess, uh, more uh, what's it sort of a level playing field in that market because uh, there are two large providers globally um, in in the in the phase of uh, ISS and Glass Lewis. I think there's a lot of worry about that sort of duopoly um, mm -hmm. globally. So certainly a lot of interesting things. And there's lots of other bits to it um, in, in uh, the proposals, but those are probably the, the headline items, I'd say. Um, look, I think on SRD2, the one thing we're really looking out for is the definition of a shareholder, which really is, uh, feels like a very fundamental building block that we've been waiting for for a long time, just harmonizing that core piece of definitions at an EU level. So we think that an SRD2 um, review, if it can you know, resolve one issue, then the definition of shareholder would be very welcome. Yeah. And Virginia, I don't know if you mentioned ESG month there. We talked about it in our last episode. I think quite ironic that the 
during ESG month is the most I've ever read about the death of ESG. <laughs> I think every article I've read over recent months about ESG has been about its death or it being a clown circus or something most recently this week, I think. But yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting. I mean, E, S and G are all very separate topics, um, as this is proving, right? So um, you can have people that hate ESG, but, you know, are focusing on the G bit. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, obviously, I think it's embedded in the investment process now. We can't get rid of it. Uh, much as people may w- wish to get rid of it. But uh, I'd say on the on the side of investing, I think more thematic investing on the E and the S will probably be the order of the day going forward if, if they ditch the ESG term overall. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, again, in the in the busy run of news, uh, we also had the uh, Basel III endgame rules in the US. It's, it's a very cool title, which is probably why I like to, to cover it and talk about it. But the US regulators unveiled these major new capital rules, obviously. Uh, I think it's set to increase the requirements for, for GCIBs by about 19%, um, so quite a lot. Uh, and again, this this proposal brings the US in line with the international endgame rules. Um, so Sean, apart from the, the cool Avengers-style tagline, I guess this wasn't a major surprise for banks, was it? No, I don't think so. I think everyone was expecting it. I mean, you, people still complained about it, but I, I think it was to be expected. As you said, it is basically the US just catching up to the rest of the developed world around around the implementation of Basel. I mean, I think the one thing that's interesting is with the end game proposals and some of the other things you've seen the banking regulators do in the U.S., um, somewhat all referencing, obviously, the chaos around S- SVB and the First Republic back in March and April, um, is they are very focused on sort of capital rules, even though what they experienced in the spring was a liquidity issue with a number of banks. So I'm not sure they're addressing the right set of issues that they ran into in the spring, but it's probably, it is good to see them bring the sort of banking standards in mind with, with the rest of the world. And Ben, we, we always touch on certain things on this show, um, usually ESG, tick. Um, Bitcoin and crypto uh, ETFs, which we haven't actually discussed yet. And the other one, obviously, at the moment is T plus one. So we had testing begin last week on T plus one and I mean look, it's not the most exciting sounding story that, that testing for the new settlement cycle has begun but um, Virginia what, what what do you think we're going to find out uh, from from this testing over the next I think 21 weeks is it I mean it always shakes out lots of issues <laughs> which is I think why we start doing the testing process quite early because um, it does feel quite early although um, I guess the year is disappearing rapidly. But certainly, um, I think the last time when we moved to T plus two, a lot of the testing sort of highlighted some issues uh, within each financial institution that needed to be addressed in terms of processes and uh, connectivity and data issues that might be um, might need to be addressed between counterparties and things like that. And particularly with the DTCC side is also a learning journey for them. So I think uh, it will be educational, let me put it that way. It's always quite painful as well from, from uh, experience and, and talking to people as to, to you know, the feedback uh, during this process. I'm probably right in thinking the testing period was a bit longer for T3 to T2 though. Yeah. Um, and Ben, does the sediment cycles kind of fall within your remit as well? Yeah, absolutely. It's something that we are following. I think you mentioned that last week as well. It's quite an interesting test case for UK-EU divergence almost, whether they follow the same timeline on T plus one. They clearly have their own 
kind of investigative phases currently that they're engaged in. I think the US will be a very interesting test case just to see how long it took, what the operational issues were that were thrown up, and then, you know, the lessons learned from that in terms of the UK and the EU implementation. So I think that's something to watch for the industry. What are the timelines going to be on this side um, of the Atlantic? And to what extent will UK and the EU try and coordinate, especially now that they have their new um, MOU in place? So plenty of opportunity to, to discuss and uh, align. Yeah, the UK is going to be ahead of the EU in this, isn't it? Is that is that the best bet at the moment? It's a good question. I think on the EU side, clearly we haven't got the kind of uh, public mandate yet. I think CSDR is kind of calling for an investigation. On the UK side, again, it's more of a kind of private sector um, with the public sector um, lead in terms of investigating when and whether to transition. So I think it would be interesting to see once extra legislation comes through, who's going to kind of set the standard first. Is there a kind of political, you know, hey, now we're, we're free of uh, the, the EU, let's let's do everything faster and quicker and on our own? Um, you know, is there almost a political angle to, to getting, it, getting it rolled out first? Of course there is. <laughs> <laughs> Whether it's a logical angle or not is, is the matter that I always bring up in this, this instance, right? Because going diverging from the EU is going to be painful for everyone. I just really think it's a bad idea. And I think the industry thinks it's a bad idea. It's just whether the people that are making the final decisions listen to the industry feedback is the bigger issue here, if you ask me. That's my cynical point. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, I think the interesting thing will be that on the UK side, when you, whilst in theory, they might want to be the first of the blocks, the kind of long list of legislative and regulatory initiatives they have on their plate after Edinburgh reforms, after Mansion House, might mean they're just kind of constrained just from a bandwidth perspective to, you know, push this to the top of the agenda. So I uh, agree with Virginie, they might, um, you know, have the desire to be first of the blocks, but there is a lot on their plate at the moment. Yeah, I was just going to, I mean, I think the T plus one is really interesting for UK divergence, because it's not like they'll be first, it's whether they choose to follow the US or coordinate with Europe. And so I think it would almost be divergence for the sake of divergence. I mean, there's really zero advantage in move, not, not working, coordinating with the EU on the move to T plus one. So I think Virginia's point, like no one in the industry wants this. So it would, if they push ahead purely for political reasons, it will be sort of a, interesting to see what the implications of that are. Yeah. And Ben, uh, you know, divergence uh, is our kind of title of the episode today. Actually, a bit like Endgame reminds me of something that Marvel could use for a Avengers sequel. But um, yeah, what, do you see the UK, as we just said, kind of flexing its post-Brexit muscles um, in many ways? Yeah, and I think in a way, you know, we expected that to happen quite a lot sooner post-Brexit. I think there was clearly a political desire to deviate in, in a number of areas where it makes sense. And ironically, now that the politically political temperature has gotten a little bit warmer, you know, this is the moment when actually you're seeing a lot of legislative and regulatory action. Um, and it's partly driven just by the different timelines, right, in order to prepare legislation, push through consultation papers, discussion papers, um, and get that whole, I guess, bandwagon of regulatory reform um, on the road that takes quite some time. And we're now at this point where we're really seeing clear divergences. And just to kind of pick up two different examples, in the last, um, in the last episode, you talked about, uh, you know, MIFID II research unbundling. We're clearly seeing different approaches there. The EU 
taking SME um, research out of scope, the UK going for this kind of platform idea, following Rachel Kent's investigation. So there are clearly going to be differences on, on that side. You're also seeing in the ESG space, um, again, quite dramatic differences. We had SFDR on the EU side, the EU taxonomy. You know, we're, we're seeing the, um, uh, the corporate sustainability disclosure regulation coming through. And on the UK side, you know, we're still waiting for the fund labels regime. I think last time you mentioned that we're expecting that in quarter four. We're still waiting for their consultation on the green taxonomy. Um, you know, on, on corporate disclosures, there's clearly a desire to align with ISSB and there are clear differences between ISSB and the EU CSDR. So I think it's going to be quite interesting over the next come six to 12 months, really seeing some of that divergence crystallize. And I don't think we've we've seen that until now, really, unless... Un apart from a few technical areas like mandatory buy-ins. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sean, what do you think about that? And how happy are you that Ben is referencing that previous episode? I mean, it's amazing. It's always good to know who our one listener is. But um, <laughs> no, I think that's right. I mean, I think obviously the rhetoric around Brexit was sort of this big bang divergence, which was never practically feasible. So I think we are now at the point where Within over the next six months to a year, we will start seeing sort of real divergence. And I think it will be interesting because a lot of firms, especially, you know, I focus on the sort of asset management area, will have to negotiate now a local set of Brexit UK rules along with complying with European rules for their European funds. And I think it's just going to add a layer of complexity without a lot of upside. But I mean, that's just the nature of cross jurisdictional business. But I think. The real problem with this idea of sort of wildly divergent rules in the UK is it can only really benefit domestic businesses in the UK, you know, sort of really domestic banks, et cetera. Because once you start working on a cross-border basis, you can't not comply with the European rules. So I think it becomes a, a, just a, another challenge firms are going to have to uh, to deal with. Yeah. And Ben, is, is the firm struggling with the, the, the divergence, would you say? They're trying to grapple with it. I'm not sure I would necessarily call it struggling. It's clearly an additional implementation burden if and when it arises. And you're already seeing that on a kind of technical level at times where, you know, from a reporting perspective, um, you know, not trying to bore your listeners, but, you know, the recent equity transparency um, policy statement from the FCA from a perspective of post-trade reporting, it's clearly taking a different path to the EU side. So you have a mm -hmm. designated reporter regime on the EU side. You still align according to the SI status who reports. So, you know, I think these differences will make it more costly to comply with the different sets of regulation, um, especially, obviously, as Sean has mentioned, for companies that, um, you know, that um, are active on both sides of the channel. So I think that will be the the main impact. I, it's difficult to say whether firms are struggling. It just means for now a lot more work. Yeah, yeah it's a mapping exercise, isn't it? In terms of what what needs to be reported in which manner, um, which is is always more pain. I'd say the what you know the worst instance of di divergence and confusion is like cri the crypto regs at the moment in the UK are a hot mess. Is the way I would describe them. I'm having to try and write um, a paper on that topic. It's just sort of trying to understand what kind of perspective the UK is going to take uh, in that realm. Because I, th I think they initially started talking about being a crypto hub at the start of this year. And now, I, because of what's been going on in the markets globally, and, and especially in the US, they've kind of stepped back a little bit, but not necessarily 
um, reflected that in their proposals because there's lots of different proposals, much like the US so far. Fun times. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Virginia, you mentioned uh, digital assets there and, and tokenization. And I know you uh, are running a panel at Cybos on tokenization, but you also wrote something for us on uh, on Global Custodian uh, mm-hmm. a while back. Um, you know, it's obviously the buzzword now that we can't talk about crypto, right? But it's it's quite slow in progress. Um, you know, what, what what is it your panel is going to look at and, and kind of how sceptical are you going to be on, on the matter? <laughs> well, it's obvious what, how sceptical I'm going to be. But, um, I think pivots is the word, like from the, that bit in Friends where Ross starts shouting pivot as they go around mm-hmm. the, uh, t- taking the, the sofa up the stairs. But I think a lot of firms really have pivoted from um, crypto assets to even in just terminology to, to, to tokenization and, and lots of tokenized tokenized asset experimentation is going on out there. So I think that's what we're going to be talking about largely on the panel. Has any of this experimentation sort of resulted in um, wholesale changes? What kinds of lessons have been learned? I mean, from, from I've obviously been doing a lot of research on it, hence I wrote that blog for you guys. But looking at some of the experiences, there's lots of problems out there with regards to, um, you know, the, the actual settlement of uh, and, and uh, custody sort of aspects of, of uh, digital assets still or tokenized assets. Uh, in terms of you know, there not being a CBDC, that being something far off in the horizon, there not being a process for KYC that's digital entirely or using you know digital identity. I know there's been um, the introduction of a new identifier for the assets themselves um, fairly recently, and I know lots of people are, are sort of championing that. But as we all know with standards, not everybody adopts them, <laughs> and it mm-hmm. takes quite a lot for people to adopt them. So um, that's a big problem. And I guess the the legal aspects are some of the most challenging. It takes a long time to understand responsibilities and how um, you know even sort of processes such as settlement finality on a on a public blockchain. When do you when do you declare something is uh, you know there's there's finality on the settlement because um, if there's mining involved, it's not the same as uh, you know conventional uh, traditional assets and, and the settlement process there. So there's lots of different aspects to this that I think we'll co- we'll cover on the panel. Um, yeah. We may need a couple of hours <laughs> rather than 45 <laughs> minutes, to be fair. Yeah. I, I, ben, you know, obviously, um, probably not quite as much excitement in the, uh, the European space as there is in the US when it comes to crypto and digital assets. But obviously, we know about BNY Mellon's kind of foray into this space. Um, you know, what, what's it like for you covering uh, you know, crypto and digital asset updates from, from a regulatory point of view? Look, I think um, not much to add, but uh, Virginie has said, I think it's going to be interesting to see again how the regulatory approaches differ. And Virginie referenced the UK versus EU. The EU obviously put forward the Mika proposal on the tokenization side. They have their pilot regime. We're now hearing on the UK side, there's a lot of activity um, and consultations around their sandbox regime for tokenized assets. And obviously they had a consultation paper um, earlier in the year as well on their legislative um, uh, their legislative regime for um, crypto assets. So, you know, there's a lot happening on the regulatory and public policy side. I think it will be interesting to to watch to what extent that there will be divergence at the end of that and or to what extent some of those regulatory rule sets kind of come back together. Yeah, absolutely. Sean, any final words on crypto? Oh God! Uh, no, yeah, but I think the <laughs> no, the one thing I will say to stay on the regulatory theme that it's worth mentioning that the U.S. banking regulators a couple of weeks ago released a couple of sort of guidance notes, if you will, uh, around for U.S. banks and crypto, um, sort of tightening the screw, screws a little more, and sort of two interesting points 
Uh, one is if you if an institution wants to deal with stable coins, they need to get specific permission from uh, the banking regulators, uh, the federal banking regulators. And the other one to sort of this tokenization and blockchain things that we have been talking about, they're going to do sort of a thematic review in the U.S. of potential risks that arise um, from using blockchain or distributed ledger technology uh, to understand what they could, what risks they could pose to banks and to the, to the system. So I think it's the first time we've seen a regulator start to take a step back and wonder what are the implications of all these sort of pipe dreams around blockchain. So I think it will be interesting to see how that impacts things moving forward. Obviously, U.S. specific, but I think it's an, another interesting point around how regulators are starting to look at the space differently. Ben, I guess I'll give you the, the final word here. Is there anything else that, that you're covering at the moment or any points we didn't touch on on the, uh, on the divergence matter that, that you think particularly uh, of interest to our audience? I think we've covered a, a plenty of different topics um, to uh, keep your listeners interested. I think the one thing to look out for, especially now as we're nearing European elections in 2024, as we're nearing UK elections as well, is to what extent that will have an impact on some of the legislative agenda going forward. I think on the European side, um, again, I, I heard in the last few episodes, there's sometimes a little bit of cynicism around the capital markets union idea, which has been um, making the rounds for a number of years. I think, again, it will be interesting to see whether the European Commission takes another bite at that cherry of um, capital markets union. Certainly from a markets perspective, um, you know, from a BNY Mellon perspective, we'd say there's still a, a lot of work to, to do in that space. So we hope uh, it keeps on top of their agenda going forward. Fantastic. Yeah. Cynicism? It can't be us. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a cynical FinRec angle. <laughs> Outdated uh, title for season six. Well, uh, Ben, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, it's been really nice to have you as a guest on the uh, on the show. Um, to, to wrap things up, uh, Sean, where can we find uh, your thoughts? Oh, as always, you can follow me over on uh, Twitter at uh, my handle is at smtuffy. Are you sure you don't want to rephrase that, Sean? Where can we find you? <laughs> Virginia knows. <laughs> X. 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 Oh, right. they renamed it. Sorry. Yeah. No, I refuse to play along. It's kind of style guide. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like how uh, I always still call it Lansdowne Stadium instead of Aviva. I'm just, I'm just old fashioned. <laughs> Marathon bar instead of Snickers. No, not that old fashioned. <laughs> I um I particularly enjoyed your uh, Velociraptor uh, picture where the CFTC and SEC are hunting down uh, Binance. That was <laughs> fantastic. Um, Virginia, what are you working on at the moment? Uh, as I mentioned, the tokenization stuff. So that's coming out very soon. I think it's coming out next week. Um, and also uh, a big thing on proxy voting, which again is also coming out uh, next month. Um, and uh, obviously, Cybos prep. So that's all exciting stuff. So I'll hopefully see some people, including yourself, over there. Um, yeah. And you can see my stuff on www.fintechfirebrand.com. Well, uh, we'll see if we can squeeze in a quick uh, Cybos preview, though. To be honest, we're talking about T plus one and exactly. uh, you know, yeah, sediment fails, and that's pretty much uh, everything and tokenization. Um, so we haven't, uh, we haven't talked about ISO 20022, which is... <laughs> and that's all we've got time for today. A perennial theme. <laughs> <laughs> it means actually having to say the word as well, which I'm not so keen on. Um, over at Global Custodian, we, well, we've got a lot going on. Um, we've, we've got some 
magazines coming out, our full issue, our fund services issue. We are working on an outsourced trading supplement. But the thing I wanted to bring up today is that we're still working on the T plus one industry issues forum. We are, as part of that, releasing a T plus one handbook, which should give you everything you need to know on T plus one and the US move uh, to shorten its settlement cycle. There's a lot of news, features, opinions in there, but we're also listing all the questions we're getting from our T plus one industries forum um, and alongside the partners we've got on that project to try to answer everyone's specific questions. So hopefully uh, we're, we're helping out there and we've got this digital handbook, which is going to be a living, breathing, constantly updated uh, guide to, to T plus one and, and the changes going on there to, to help everyone out. So do keep an eye out for that. Um, but for now, thanks to everyone. Um, in the words of uh, Rishi Sunak this weekend, you left absolutely nothing out there. Did everyone see that tweet? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really got to get clued up on uh, football cliches. But uh, thanks thanks to you all today. And uh, Ben, brilliant to have you on the show today. Thanks a lot for having me. You were listening to There's Always a Fimra Gangle podcast with Global Custodian. <laughs>